Word to you. This evening we will be focusing on John chapter 2, the verses 13 through 22, and I've, I would invite you to turn there with me. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Hear the word of God fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, as John says at the beginning of this gospel. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheeps and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, we pray that we too, hearing your word, may believe it. We pray that our hearts may be rich soil for your word, that it may take deep root, and that that it may also bear abundant fruit in our lives for your glory, for our salvation, and for the blessing of of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you know the scene from C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Lucy and Edmund, in the middle of their enchanting adventure, arrive at a large grassy meadow. And as they gaze into the breathtaking horizon, a tiny white spot catches their attention. So bright that it almost hurts their eyes to look at it. Curious children that they are, they must know what it is. They must go and see what this fascinating thing is. And so, they begin walking towards it until it comes into view. And when they come close enough, they see that it's a gloriously white lamb. And what is this lamb doing? He's actually cooking a fish breakfast for them. He's cooking a breakfast feast for them. Lucy and Edmund. The obvious allusions to John's gospel don't end here. After Lucy and Edmund enjoy the most delicious 
breakfast feast they've ever had. They strike up a conversation with the Lamb. They talk with the Lamb about how to get to the land of Aslan. As the Lamb begins to tell them the way, something both frightening and delightful happens to the Lamb. In the words of Lewis, his snowy white flashed into tawny gold and his size changed and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. The tender lamb becomes a ferocious, glorious lion. For anyone familiar with the Bible, Lewis's point is clear. The Lamb of God is the Lion of Judah. And the Lion of Judah is the Lamb of God. And here in John 2, we meet the Lamb-Lion in the temple. The Gospel of John has been called and is known as the Book of Signs. The beginning of John 2 starts with the first miraculous sign that Jesus did, we're told there. Remember, at the wedding of Cana, he turns the water into wine. That's his first miraculous sign. Well, here in the second part of John 2, we have actually two more signs. One is the sign of the lion. And the other is the sign of the Lamb. Let's take a look. You may have noticed that John does something in his Gospel account that none of the other three Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do. John actually reports the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of his Gospel, already in the second chapter. The other three three do it later on. And from the specific time references in the verses 12 and 13 and 23, it's clear that John isn't isn't just shuffling or ignoring the chronology, let alone reconstructing it. John is actually reporting an earlier episode of the same thing distinct from the second temple cleansing, later in Jesus' ministry, reported by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So what this means is that Jesus cleansed the temple both at the beginning and again at the end of his earthly ministry. And if you compare the the two accounts of the first cleansing in John and the second cleansing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will notice some differences, actually. We won't go into detail about those now. But it's, it's something worth noting. And this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus both begins and ends his ministry with the cleansing of the temple. Because Jesus himself is the temple of God, isn't he? 
That's how John has introduced him in the first chapter. The one who made his dwelling among us. The one who tabernacled. The one who templed among us. And this, in fact, seems to be one of the main points of this episode. So Jesus enters the temple, we're told. And as he does so, he, he does something that we don't really expect. And surely the people there wouldn't have expected him to do this. Because notice what he does. As he enters the temple, he takes some cords, he takes some rope that would have been used to tie up the animals, and he makes a whip of them. We don't expect Jesus to do that, do we? And he uses this whip not only to set free the the sheep, oxen, and pigeons, who are not going to be much needed anymore, at least not in the temple, but he also uses the whip to usher out the sellers and the loan sharks who have made the temple unrecognizable. He drives out those people who have changed the temple into a, fast, into a fast-paced, frenzied marketplace and trading floor. He sends the carefully stacked coins of the loan sharks jangling across the floor and he upends the busy and greedy tables of the merchants. Get these out of here, he tells those selling pigeons. You shouldn't be making my father's house into a bustling, hustling marketplace and trading floor. Now, to the typical onlooker, and perhaps probably to the typical reader of the Bible, certainly, this scene seems utterly confusing. And Jesus seems to be a rather disturbed man right now, to say the least. He's having a temper tantrum, isn't he? And surely the temple, the temple of the living God is no place to have such a a disturbing episode, an outburst. But his disciples instantly understand, at least partially, what is going on here. That's what we're told. They remember what Psalm 69 says, zeal for your house will consume me. That psalm immediately comes to their minds. Any Jew who knows the Scriptures and has been paying any attention at all to John the Baptist and Jesus will catch on immediately to what seems to be going on here. How can they have forgotten what Malachi said? Especially after the prophet John the Baptist's preaching. If the Jews really were on their tippy toes as they claimed to be, waiting for the sudden arrival of Messiah, waiting for the Lord's messenger to come, they would know, wouldn't they? Like we read, Malachi 3, 
Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Terrifying picture, isn't it? Should the people in the temple really be surprised at what is happening here with the arrival of Jesus? And with, with the whip of cord, of, of cords that he's made? And with his outburst of fury? The prophets had said this would happen long ago already, hundreds of years before. Zeal for his father's house has eaten him up, as the psalm says. And this is why Jesus is so furious. Not that it's wrong for people to buy and sell in the temple courts. That was okay. That was fine for the purposes of bringing sacrifices. The problem was that they're acting as if that's all there's to it. while ignoring the white, spotless Lamb Himself. They just don't see what should be so blindingly obvious to them. Isn't this how often we are? When Jesus speaks to us and when Jesus is present, And when he he brings his word to us, we often don't see him. As this is all happening, Jesus is lamenting. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. You see, that's why Jesus is so furious. He comes to His own, but His his own do not receive Him. His own do not recognize Him. It's as if Jesus is saying with Isaiah, it's as if Jesus is saying with His actions, who has asked of you to trample My courts like this? Who Who has asked you to stampede My Father's house like this? and make it a trading floor. Why all this frenzied commotion in the place meant for worship? Quit bringing meaningless sacrifices and all your religious charades stop already. That's what Jesus is saying, to use the words of Isaiah 1. Sure, they've entered the temple all excited about another Passover feast. That was always a a big deal. Lots of excitement. 
They loved all the travel to Jerusalem, the hustle and the bustle in the city, the, the partying and the feasting, the meeting of old friends and family. But they're missing the whole point. And that is to prepare the way of the Lord. They're so busy looking for the best lambs their money can buy to impress their friends that they cannot even see the one and only Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All their aimless commotion, masking as religiosity, has blinded them to the glorious, white, spotless Lamb. They don't recognize the Lamb of God who's right in front of them. And therefore, they don't tremble before the Lion of Judah. Because look at what happens next. They ask Him for a sign. Another sign, that is. Jesus has just given them a sign. But they don't get it. So they demand another sign. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, you come in here and, and have this outburst. And, and cause all this commotion. Who gives you the authority to do this, Jesus? Show us a sign. They want Him to prove His authority to do what He's just done. So Jesus accepts their challenge. Verse 19. Destroy this temple, He says. And in three days, I will raise it up. You ask for a sign? I will give you a sign. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. To which they respond in exasperation. Look at verse 20. Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? They're doing the math. And it doesn't add up. Already 400 years ago, Zerubbabel had started rebuilding the temple. He had spent 20 years on it. Herod had also just spent another 20 years on the, this rebuilding project. And, and in between Zerubbabel and Herod, the Maccabees had spent about another five or six years working on it. And it, it was still under construction, actually. And now Jesus comes along and claims to be able to complete the whole project from even from demolition to completion in three days? 
Are you kidding? And on top of this, doesn't Jesus know that in these days of Roman rule, anyone who destroys a temple of any kind will be immediately sentenced to death? Jesus, are you out of your mind? But the Jews don't realize, of course, that he's speaking about his body. And even his disciples won't catch on until after his resurrection, as we're told in verse 22. Now, his disciples do have a better insight than the others, as we're told in verse 17. They remember Psalm 69, which I mentioned earlier. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's what's making him so ferocious. Psalm 69 forms Jesus' mindset but along different lines than the disciples are thinking right now. Zeal for your house will consume me is Jesus' mindset. Do you see? Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews think God needs their offerings and animals to be consumed. But Jesus drives out all the animals until the Lamb of God alone is left. It's as if He's saying, as all eyes rest on Him, look, you don't need these animals anymore. Look here, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let the fire of God's wrath consume me. Zeal for your house, Father, will consume me, says Jesus. Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you do not desire, Father, nor are you pleased with oxen, sheep, and pigeons without number. So here I am. I have come to do your will, I have come to lay down my life to be the spotless lamb. Let your wrath consume me. Let, let my zeal for your house, let my zeal for your sons and daughters consume me, Father. Here the Lamb of God rises up as the Lion of Judah. Here we glimpse John's vision of the wrath of the Lamb 
like we read in Revelation 6, which sends everyone scurrying into hiding, calling on the, mount- on the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. For He rises in judgment on the people of God. Yes, also you and me. In the temple of God. For you and me. He rises in judgment and full of wrath, full of fury so that He can take their place, your place, my place to bear the judgment and fury of His Father. The Lion of Judah rises in fury for none of these expensive animals, none of these frenzied worshipers, none of this religious commotion could ever take His place as the Lamb of God. Do we understand that? None of our most expensive gifts to the church or to anyone else. None of our our most zealous worship. None of any of the religious commotion that we're involved in from week to week and month to month and, and year to year will do. Do we understand that? Do we understand that no one and nothing can take the place of the Lamb of God? The Lion of Judah rises in fury because he's filled with jealous love for his people. He's filled with jealous love for you, for me, for all his children. That's why he's furious. He's furious about the sin that has infected our lives and corrupted our hearts. And he wants to get rid of it. And he will get rid of it. And he must get rid of it. And He is the only one who can. He is the only Paschal Lamb who will do the job and with whom God will be pleased. But He will not only die like like those other animals were supposed to. After three days, He will rise again. And that will be the sign everyone needs to see and believe. Not only has He died, but He's risen to new life. And this temple, it won't need to be finished. It can stay under construction. It can be demolished. They can stop now already with their construction project. For Jesus Himself is the temple of God. God with us in Him. God has come to dwell with 
us. And He is the place we worship. He is the one we worship. He is the leader of our worship. He is the object of our worship. Although they have no idea, they will destroy the temple. They will destroy Him. They will crucify Him. They will have Him tortured on the cross. But that won't be the end. Jesus will rise in three days and then His disciples will remember what He said like John says in verse 22. And they will believe the Scriptures. And what about you and me? Do you believe this? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still the lion and the Lamb. How's that for a sermon title? He is the Lion and the Lamb. He is the Lion of Judah whose gentleness sometimes changes to fury. He doesn't only show His love for you and me in the grassy meadows where He makes breakfast feasts. And yes, he often does that. But he also shows his love for you and me when he rises in fury to deal with your and my sin. When he rises in fury to deal with the sin of the world and to get rid of it. To atone for it. Do not run away when He roars. Tremble before Him, but do not run away. For as He rises in His fury, He also rises in His compassion and His love and His mercy and embraces you and gives you life. He gives you His life, eternal life. He doesn't want you to be consumed by the wrath of God. He's done that for you. Bathe in the glorious light of the spotless Lamb. Have that childlike curiosity like Lucy and Edmund. Let the tawny gold sun of the Lion of Judah shine on you 
and feast on the food that he offers you, even himself, the bread of life. Let us pray. Lord our God, we worship you. We acknowledge you as the Lion of Judah, Lord Jesus, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, also our sin. We thank you for your mercy to us. And we pray that you would help us not to run away, rather to tremble in your presence, knowing that your wrath has been satisfied and that as we come to you, we are safe. And we are given new life, even your life. Lord, we pray that you would help us to fall down on our faces before the Lamb and to worship him today and every day until your kingdom comes when we will see you in glory when we will feast with you and with all your sons and daughters in the joy of your kingdom, with the sun of righteousness shining on us forever and ever. Amen.